Welcome back to the Rugby League Guru Podcast. Today, we're lucky enough to be joined by Penrith Panthers legend, Mark Geyer. MG takes us through all of his career, starting all the way back at his debut, where the commentators got his name wrong, through to the 1990 grand final loss to Canberra, the 1990 Kangaroo Tour, he touches on great little chat there. Then they um, he returns from the 1990 Kangaroo Tour, and the Panthers' charge to the 1991 Premiership begins. Um led by Phil Gould, Mark Guy, Greg Alexander, Brad Fittler. They win Penrith's first ever title. Amazing, amazing scenes. And then it all sort of comes crashing down the year after with um, with the death of Greg Alexander's brother, Ben. Uh, just terrible circumstances that um, you'll be able to hear how much of an effect it had on MG and the Penrith community. Such a sad event. MG also talks about his state of origin feats, talking about his debut game and, of course, his infamous run-in with the King, Wally Lewis, and uh, a little run-in they had a few weeks later up at the um, Gold Coast Chargers. Uh, Great little story there. Um, MG, as I'm sure you know, an absolute champion bloke. Uh, He achieved a lot in his career, but I think he's done his best work post-footy, what he's been doing on the radio, and just for people in life, uh, we touch on that as well, and... Yeah, he's just a great fella. He's got all the time in the world for anyone. I hope you enjoy this chat. Let's kick it off. Couldn't get it back into the field of play. Short drop out by Cameron and Evan. Oh, oh go, go! Go! Gets it! Racing Simmons! MG, how are we, mate? Fantastic. Yes, uh, isolating well. Like I hope everyone else is who's listening to this chat. Mate, I could be wrong, but I don't think there's a better household than the Guy family getting through isolation. You guys seem to be flying over there. Oh, you know what? We've had, we have our days. Um, our days. We had a. Um, so I think it's just kind of you got to try and mix it up. You know, we've got seven of us here, and um, luckily, there's seven days in the week, so we each get our own day to um, set set the day up to the other members of the family. And uh, usually, or last Saturday night was, I think, one of the. One of the daughters' nights, and they decided to have a casino night. We like to dress up and have a bit of roulette with, uh, with a few coins we've got laying around the house. So, keep the news, mate. Just keep, you know, keep doing stuff. We're, we're finding that um, that much to watch as far as sport goes. That you know, we're we're inventing our own little sports trivias and general general knowledge trivias, and just get busy. Otherwise, you, uh, you start thinking about the drama that's going on, and it's kind of a little bit anxious. Explain to me the uh, the whiteboard system. Exactly what it is. It's the whiteboard system. Exactly right. Well, it, it's up to someone to decide the entire day's events according to the whiteboard, and how uh, how strictly are we following? Um, well, for instance, today uh, my oldest boy's day, Logan. So um, we, had, we had to get up at nine thirty, at ten thirty, um, you know, then break our brunch at about eleven thirty, and then decides what we have for dinner. Um, we, then he does the uh, the, the night. 
Um, well, the night class is what we're going to do at night. Usually it's a couple of card games or a board game and followed by a movie to finish off with. So it just gives, gives you a direction, I suppose, when you're, you know, you're wandering around not one, not knowing what to do with the day. There's only so much you can do, so it's good that someone takes the, the onus and, and tells us what to do. Before we dive into your uh, rugby league career, I think um, I think it's something close to your heart. I think um, at the moment with all that's going on, mental health, uh, you know, it could turn into something just unpre- unprecedented in Australia. Um, for any, you know, young people, I know that you had your demons when you were a young fella. Um, what would you say to anyone that's struggling during this time? Yeah, you're right. I think it's going to be a, I think it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. Um, uh, one of the one of the young guys who comes who was going to my gym before we had to close it down due to the pandemic. Uh, one of his mates had to play, tried to do himself in last Friday night. Um, there's a there's a there's a wave coming of, of these young guys who have who've been used to doing what they want to do, and with you know suicide being the, the number one killer from for males country, um, especially them 16 to you know 40 year old males. To each other, we're going to look at look out for each other more than ever. And I know even with my mates that I, I was seeing every day for the last ten years, that we now do a nightly house party hook up. We chat, we chat. Um, one of them, my other mates just feel a little happy that we can play online euchre against each other. So but I think just keep you got to try and do things that you were doing before, but then and then some. You've got to make up the any a bit as far as um, you know your, your correspondence with your mates goes and. Last questions. I keep telling my kids that you know, if any you got any dramas about what's going on, speak up. Um, yeah, that's one one of the main reasons I opened up the gym to get people uh, active and, and get their well-being uh, mentally on, on track. And that's been the biggest tragedy about all this. That you know, most people have lost access to any sort of training that they were used to, and improvisation is caught upon. And we have started an online. Um, Training sessions that me and my young bloke put up every day for, for our members. So if anyone wants, anyone's joining, listening to this, they want to join us. Just go to MG Active with no out the e dot com dot au and um, come and join us and have a have a bit of fun while we work out. Mate, I'll um I'll ask you about the gym in the moment, but um just what you said there about going um, above and beyond for others. Um, I was doing a bit of research uh, yesterday afternoon. And I, I came across a story about. A bloke from Cowra that you helped out a few years ago, and I just thought it was a sensational story. Can you uh, can you share that one with us? Um, oh, mate, I get I, I, I get a lot of social media direct messages from guys, mainly mostly guys. Yeah, they well, yeah, majority of men who are in trouble. Um, this young like Pat, I think it was from Forbes, um, and he was just he said, "Look, this is a long shot. Um, get some help." He said, "I'm." In my, I'm setting my ways and them ways aren't real good. I'm, I'm about to have my first kid and I'm worried that I'm going to bring her to the world and I'm not going to be a real good dad. And so I rang him straight away and just gave him a buzz and said, mate, what's up? And for about an hour, um, actually, we spoke from the time I left my driveway at Penrith all the way into the World Square where I do uh, my radio show at Triple M. So it was about a 55 minute chat and um, I said, look, any time, mate, just, you know, you got my number now, give me a buzz. And so then we had about three or four more change, uh, chats, exchanges, and um, about two years ago, now he's got a beautiful baby boy um, who's 18 months old. And, uh, yeah, he said that the phone call changed his life and, and, and 
basically saved his life. So, and you know, like it's, that's why I, I think that a lot of people in my position, I suppose, who have been given a, a fair bit of luck in their life, of you know, you, you do make your own luck. But I've been I've been blessed with five beautiful children. I've been blessed with a career after footy that's sustained me for the you know, majority of what I'm doing now. And um, I think too much is given as much as expected. And I, I mean, I. I the best thing about social media is those people who wouldn't ordinarily contact with you, they can just via a simple message and then it's up to the person to get back to them and you know, nine times out of ten I do. Yeah, mate, and I'm, you know, it's, it's been so appreciated by all the uh, all the community, everything you've done over the years. I guess it's, um, and else, you know, it's the small things you can do. Like I went to get my coffee yesterday and the person before me had paid for two coffees, so the next person got their theirs free and, you know, yeah. Save me four dollars, yeah. but like, fuck, it's it, it, it's something at this time, you know. It's a gesture. That's the gesture. It's it's the you know, no, no one's doing it. No one's doing it easy at the moment. Everyone, even if you've got a business that's thriving, it's still logistically setting things up because we've never experienced anything like this before. So, um, yeah, but most small businesses, and I'm one of them, um, where we're on pause for six or seven months. So I reckon this will be this will take to get us back on track. So. Accept that, um, accept the fate of, of, of how far it's going to be uh, disrupting our lives. I think the quicker you can get on with it, and, and the quicker you start to think, okay, well, what else can we do to, what else can we do to make sure that you know, we're, a we're busy through our days, and, and b we're being productive, not just sitting around watching movies and eating junk food and, and drinking beer. And you can do that. You can do it. You know, yeah, you've got to reward yourself for that, like like in life, just because this is not a holiday. This is a force. This is this has been forced upon us. So, um, you know, the, the quicker people get their, their head around the fact that we're in the midst of something we've never been ex, uh, experienced before in our life, the easier the life will be. Speaking of the business, mate, uh, for those that have followed you on social media for a few years now, you know they would have seen um, you and your mates getting together. What looked like um, in a garage to do some fitness down at the netball courts. Um, I suppose it's been a dream of yours to open a gym for a long time, and it came true this year. I did, <laughs> yeah. I, I um, look. I want to. I've been wanting to do it for about ten years now. But Breakfast Radio uh, kind of uh, didn't enable enable me to do that because of the fact that the hours were so early, and <clears throat> I've never I've never really had any energy to do that. But since being on the new show, the Rush Hour overnight, and, and my young bloke's old enough now, Logan, he's twenty five, so he can he does all the behind the scenes work um, we do programs together and that and yeah and we opened up on February 4th and quickly got 100 members um, which was kind of three or four months before our forecast but um, no mirrors no expectations just coming out and fun doing class workouts you know I, I was doing the 5 the 6 and the 9.30 classes of the morning and then going to do the radio loads do um, the afternoons 5 and 6pm so yeah sad sad that it's um, been put on pause because it was helping so many people and half of those people have still continued their memberships with the online um, activities that we do every day we give each, we give them two classes a day one is a sweat class where they can just do all cardio um, if they've got no equipment they just do all body weight stuff um, and another one's we, we've got uh, pump bars at the gym about 60 of them so we just gave them out to all our members to um, so I can do you know some 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 light light weights at home and just just to do, just to stay busy. You know, it's 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 amazing. It's it's kind of like a 
a movie, isn't it? We all think that, you know, this is, you couldn't make up something like this, what's happening in the world at the moment. And you know, each day you wake up and it's the first thing you think about. And when you go to bed, it's the last thing you think about. Um, and I think the main factor is that the quicker we all do the right thing, the quicker we'll get better. Oh, it's crazy, mate. You know, if you would have mentioned two weeks before the NRL season kicked off that it would, you know, the comp wouldn't be on, people would have laughed at you. It's astonishing. It's, uh, it's just the way the dominoes are just falling. And, and, and I think the fact that we're not on our own as Australians, we're not, it's, it's, it's a global pandemic um, where everyone's affected by it one way, shape or form. And it's just, yeah, you, you feel for, you know, <clears throat> people who are in uh, Italy and, it's real, man. It's real, and you know that the, the only thing we can do is control what we can control, and that's trying to sweat up every day, trying to eat the right things while you're in isolation, trying to get as much vitamin C and D into you. Um, it's, it's, and we're about to experience the worst thing once winter hits because that's they're, they're predicting that uh, it's going to be a, a pretty bad winter. So just a little, just get in there, love the ones you're with, and just you know. Do what you can do. Now we've been. This is our third week of isolation. With you know, I have been out once in that time. I went down to get a gas bottle on Saturday to cook a barbie. So apart from that, I've just been. I just don't want to do it. I just want to. You know, I think if the quit and my kids are the same, they're all. You know, I've got a 19-year-old son who's itching to get out and you know, do what 19-year-old boys do. And so, brother, you got. You know, they've got another 50, 60 years of doing that. So just be calm, be, you know, try and find other things to do. And if you do, as I just said to you a minute ago, the quicker you get on with it, the quicker you accept your fate, the quicker, the easier it'll become. Mate, it's a, it's a crazy time. Uh, you know, I just just jumping backwards to another crazy time in your life. Tell me about the lead up to your first grade debut. Um, first grade debut was, um, was uh, officially it was, in 1986 against Parramatta, um, when I first took a field in first grade, was was against Parramatta, the last game of the year, and I got on for about five minutes. So I suppose they don't recognise that, and I, I probably don't recognise it either. But the fact that I played against Ray Price and Mick Crone in, in their very last game at Parramatta Stadium was something that I'll always remember. And um, Ray Warren was the commentator at the time, and we got he got my name wrong, and. Um, but yeah, was, I played 23s, under 23s that day, then I played reserve grade, then I got on, I got on in first grade, which was a bit of a pat the back for me. And did the whole off season with the first grade squad in 1986, and then um, started the season of 87 in, in first grade. And um, first game was against the Bulldogs, uh, the Dogs of War. They were a forward pack that was angry and it was skillful and it was tough. And I remember playing against them in my first grade debut. Um, it was Jeff Gerard last year was my first year so he I just you know he just said mate just, you've got to get out there and do what you're doing in the lower grades because if you try and change your game to, t- to cater for first grade you, it, it won't work um, it's just a little bit faster not as you know the lower grades are probably more physical but this is just a lot, lot faster first grade and he was right um, and I, I remember that um, vividly like it was yesterday Played 12 games that year and got pneumonia. And then uh, I didn't come back until later in the year. And uh, we won the reserve grade competition with uh, Graham Murray against Manly. You had a baptism of fire your first two games against Parramatta and Canterbury uh, in the <laughs> 80s. Wow. Yeah, they were. Um, they were the two dominant teams of the 80s. And I remember Parramatta Stadium. That that was just a day that, you know, because my dad was, my dad was a Parramatta supporter uh, before I started playing for Penrith. And um, two of his, Favorite players were Cronin and 
and Price and all here I was running the field with them. And yeah, then you come against, up against um, you know Peter Kelly and Peter Tonks and, and Mark Bunkin and Steve Folks and David Gillespie and Paul Langmack, um, Andrew Farrow and, and Mortimer Brothers. Yeah, well, it was a baptism. There was it was a baptism of fire, right? I um I, I remember I got two dollars. Uh, Two daily endpoints for that my first game, my first first grade goal. So, um, yeah, it was it was re- enjoyable and, and something that I something that I've been I've been aspiring to for a long, long time to be to be a regular first grader. And when you become one, it's it doesn't let you down. Mate, some star-studded teams there. Speaking of star-studded teams, uh, your state of origin debut, 1989. Tell me about that experience. And I must have felt really. I, I got picked as a consolation for the third game and. When I was um, pretty short and I was, you know, without being egotistical, um, I was probably playing good enough to make the first team, and but I didn't. And then they got beaten the first two games, and then kind of I got picked for the third one. And Jack Gibson wasn't a fan of my my type of footy. You know, he thought I was ill disciplined, and um, but I think due to public outcry, they picked me, and he didn't say much to me. And I, I remember just going up the Lynn Park, and it was. That was like that was the next level. You know, start of origin once you make your first grade debut and you, you have a couple of years of first grade, then you you start getting you know making um, city seconds and then city first and city origin and start of origin. Um, the game just gets quicker and quicker. And I remember that game again vividly. That um, I looked up at the clock and I thought, oh, you know, it must be about ten or twelve minutes into the game, and there was five minutes before half time. I hadn't touched the ball. I'd missed three or four tackles. And so, yeah, it was, it was scary uh, playing first game of origin. And then I, I didn't think I'd get another go at it, but luckily I did in 1999. Oh, and Lewis. They're mouthing off at each other over the top of David Manson's head. Benny Elias standing there like like David. Big Mark Geyer towering over him. Manson's not impressed. Lewis again says something to Geyer. They push and shout. Um, the rest, of, you know, obviously, it's a iconic moment with me and Wally, and it's, uh, that's one of the things that, you know, it freezes in time, I suppose. And the fact that none of us threw a punch at each other in that in that little altercation probably is why it stood the test of time as far as people speaking about it. Because I think the the unknown that incident, you know, whether what would have happened if we both we started throwing punches, you know, that was that's going to be kept. Forever, no one would know what would have happened. And I, I don't know what would have happened. Wally doesn't know what would have happened. And what I do know, what I do know, happened is that I got suspended for six weeks after that game and never played Origin again. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, so it was fun while it lasted, as I say. I wouldn't change a thing, mate. I think uh, when I, you know, I, I've got a younger brother, and whenever Origin comes around and that um, that highlight comes on, like I think that younger generation, they they, they don't understand how much respect Wally Lewis held. Like, just, it must have been a daunting moment for you going up against the King in that moment. Like, I don't think we've seen a player like Wally Lewis since that held so much respect. Can you can you paint a picture for us for the younger crowd that didn't get to see Wally at his peak? Oh, it was, it was quite frank. It, it was quite simply the best. Um, not just the best, because the, the best because he was dominant at that origin, which was, which was considered the hardest of all. He didn't do much in the NRL because he kind of the Broncos came into the comp in '88 when Molly was nearing the end of his career. Um, he had a couple of years with the Broncos, he had a couple he had a year or two with the the Gold Coast team when he I think he captain coached in '91. But 
No, this is, this is one of the blokes I started watching from 1980. Um, I was allowed to start late um, on a school night when the first, I think the origin of the first one was on a Tuesday night, if, if memory serves me. But and so Dad let me start up, and Wally was locked in that team. They had Mal and Chris Close and I think Greg Oliphant. Uh, they started team, and this and obviously led by Artie Beetson, who ran out first at the age of 36, and he kind of started this thing called State of Origin by that moment. That moment was a, a game changer as far as Origin went. Between in, over the next 10 years, there was one bloke who dominated it, and that was Wally Lewis. Um, more men of the matches than anyone else in that period of time, more more single-handed win, uh, victories from, from his, you know, from him than anyone else. It's But here I was in 1991, face-to-face with him, and I think uh, he realised that I was kind of getting over their forwards somewhat, and he took it upon himself to say, well, up and he took it upon himself to rev, rev me up. And yeah, it was surreal. You know, like when he was calling, I mean, calling names, calling me names and stuff. And guy, this and guy, you that. I, I, the first thing I thought was, you know, what a loose nose who I am. <laughs> so, um, he's he's a he's a legend of the game. And you know, it was funny after that incident. My first back from suspension was against um, the Gold Coast, where he was captain coach, but he. Didn't play that game, so I, I kind of, you know, I thought he's running, he's, he's, he's hiding from me, you know. Um, I went back to the Gold Coast Beach Club after the game, and I was kind of, you know, prowling around the bar area looking for him and just wanted to finish this off, you know. I just wanted a one round two type thing. And as I was standing there talking to a couple of my teammates, I had a pat in the back and looked around, it was Wally, Wally standing there with a jug of beer and two glasses, and said, Oh, it's going to be together, eh? So we did. That was it. That was, you know, that was the start of a lot of friendship we've had um, since then. It's been a, I'm doing a lot of work for charity. We've got a daughter who's profoundly deaf. And, um, I do a lot of work with disabled, disabled athletes as well. So it goes hand in hand, you know, to this day that our friendship is, is what it is um, because of one incident on the, on the footy field. So, that, you know, rugby league's given me everything in this game. Um, everything, you know, the, I've got no doubt that I wouldn't have. Done, had had the media career if it wasn't probably from the, the Wally incident. Um, I just when I retired in uh, 2000, I just didn't say no to anything. I had three kids, and from I think 460 thousand dollars in my last year um, down to seven seven fifty a week selling jerseys and 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 sporting apparel out of the back of a car. So I quickly come down with the fun and uh, realised that I've got to support this family more and. Any opportunity to come my way, I just said, yep, 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 yep. I think I worked on every radio station in Sydney at, at some stage, especially the AM ones, and then started working at, uh, I, I did talk in sport for three years with SM. Um, then I started doing Saturday mornings with uh, Dead Set Legends with Ray Warren and uh, a couple of other blokes and Dan Ganane and Birmingham, and that was fantastic. Then the, the breakfast that opportunity came up on Triple M, and did that for nine years with um, Gussie Wall and Maddie Johns and Angie and uh, Stewie McGill early on. And and then, uh, what, two years ago, I got my own show, um, six or seven at night, we called the uh, the Rush Hour. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's, I've had a good ride. I've had a really good ride. Um, this, is obviously a, this is obviously a big hiccup, a speed hump along the way, this coronavirus. I'm sure together as one, we can, uh, we can combat it and we can all coming out the other side uh, more resilient, but also 
uh, with more perspective on life, I would imagine. You um you just took me back in time there to 2017 when you uh when you left the grill team and I think I've got to thank you for getting me into podcasts because once the grill once you and Maddie weren't on anymore I thought fuck what am I going to do with my mornings now and that's when I first discovered podcasts. It's fantastic that they're a fantastic medium a podcast because you've got to have a passion to do it. You know that's the only thing you need. You need passion and um, passion comes through the, the speakers if you if you really love doing something. It's, so that's the thing I love about radio compared to TV. Um, TV was kind of hurry up and wait type thing. You know, you put your makeup on, you've got to get your wardrobe on, and then you've got to wait around for the lighting. And, um, but radio, basically, you, you turn that button and you start talking. Straight away, people can respond via a, a phone call or social media or something like that that they want to. Um, and it's you can't hide. You're doing stuff that, um, that's passionate to you because it's it's you know the people either like it or they don't and that's it's as simple as it gets you know I, I think I I think radio for me has been great because I've had a never I've never moved from where I am now in Penrith um, so I've taken over the role of uh, inverted commas as, as a bit of a voice to the west um, which I you know I, I wear proudly on my sleeve and you know my kids are all grown up with nice beautiful young kids and. I've been with my wife since 1986, so, uh, you yeah. know, the moment besides <laughs> being locked in the walls are getting closer and closer each day, with these kids who seem to be getting bigger and bigger, um, we've just got to keep ourselves amused, and uh, at the moment we're doing okay by that. Mate, you, are, you, you certainly earned yourself the nickname The Voice of the West from the respect you got from the early 90s for what you did with Penrith. Um, I'm going to take you back to the 1990 Grand Final. You're coming up against a star-studded Canberra Raiders side. Um, you know, it's Penrith's first ever Grand Final. Tell me about the experience of the week leading up to it and, and the game itself and what Penrith learnt from it. Yeah, well, we 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 made that Grand Final and um, I think we did the Raiders and that was probably our Grand Final performance that we beat them an extra time. We're brilliant. Freddie just had a had a picnic um, in the grand final, and, and we had secret receptions. We had you know street parades. We had shirts made up. We kind of I think we we played our grand final before we even got gotten to it. And that the old adage of you probably got to lose one before you win one is was certainly correct with us. We went down to Regent, the big hotel in Sydney, for the grand final breakfast on the uh, Wednesday night for the game and, and Gus has, uh, you know, he said last instructions were to, you know, go to bed in a reasonable hour. I wanted to have a couple of beers but don't do anything stupid. But, you know, we play in three days and it's the biggest game of your life. And on that three o'clock in the morning there's about ten of us in a room and knock on the door and have a look through the, the peephole and see what it is. And when they looked through the people, I think Paul Smith, our winger, he said, it's us. I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ. So everyone's half pissed. They were all sort of jumping over the lounges and trying to hide behind curtains. And um, So he walked in and here I am standing like next to a lampshade with my head behind the cover of it. And Must have been a big lampshade. <laughs> he said, I can see you, mate. He said, you can't hide there. And he said, he goes, happy, happy boys, you just lost the green fire. Kind of, you know. Walked down the, the breakfast the next day with hangovers and, um, you know, we, we kind of always just have a couple of beers on a Thursday night because back in the day it was, you train Tuesdays and Thursdays and Saturday mornings, usually play on a Sunday, so it was boring to us, but we didn't know the enormity of, of a grand final and the build-up. And look, they were with them for a long time with Raiders who were, as you said, a star 
team and in the end they got away with it. Um, I've only ever watched that game once, so I've never watched it again. So unlike the 91 grand final, which I I have on loop here at my house, when you walk in, you just sit down and have a beer and then 91 grand final comes up. Open side, it comes to Langer. Now here's Daly, the little scrubber kick through. He's got it back, he's got Eddinghausen with him. Eddinghausen will score. Andrew Eddinghausen scores for Australia next to the post. And mate, after that, um, after that 1990 grand final, you know the heartbreak of that loss. You um, you go on the 1990 Kangaroo tour, and in my opinion, that's one of the best collection of footballers I think rugby league's ever seen. Tell me about that tour. Yeah, well, there was there was a, there was consolation. There was consolation in the fact that four of us got picked on that Kangaroo tour, and I'd been told before the game that it was out of me and Gary Coyne for the last spot. Um, so. Basically, once we got beaten, I thought, well, that's, there goes my chance of being on a kangaroo tour because we're the Glees club and they, they um, I think Don told us to see at the time, took to the microphone and said, uh, just to run, got some news on the kangaroo tour. Um, four of our players had made it. So that I went, oh, God, might be a chance, um, but I, I don't think I am. And I read out, you know, Greg Alexander, John Cartwright, Brad Fittler, and Mark Guy, and I went, oh, my goodness. I had to quickly get their passports together. And, and you know the thing about a kangaroo tour is that um, all these players that you, you see uh, on a weekly basis and you, you kind of have a perception of what they're like and you've got a perception of um, exactly what they'd be like in person. Um, and it's so, so far different to what you think. It's You, know, you go away and you, you see that Mel Meninga and Steve Roach, two of the biggest and toughest players in the game, are homesick. Um, it's still with Bobby Lidner and Gary Bircher. That is back to their families. And, and, you know, it breaks down so many barriers. We, um, the four of us, Penrith boys, all kind of gelled together and became good mates with the Bronco boys, with, the, with Kevin Walls and Chris Johns. And, you know, we, we kind of, Mickey Hancock, we kind of gravitated towards them and Laura Daly and, and Ricky Stewart, Benny Elias. And so, yeah. Result is that when you come back to play in 1991, um, you're looking across the field and you're going, well, I've just been, I've just been on two with these blokes. And you know what? They, it's not as hard as I think it's going to be. We had New Jerseys, the, the Licorice All Sorts were, were bought um, with Dada as our sponsor, and we just looked good. We just looked better. We felt better. We felt more confident. When you've got your two playmakers and, and your both back rowers coming back from such a, a, a big tour. Um, and and going all going well, you know we all played pretty well over there, probably except for Freddie who who went away, at, you know ninety eight kilo and come back at one hundred and seven. <laughs> he enjoyed himself a little bit too much. But he was he was only, you know, as long as it's a big tour for him. So, but yeah, it was it was amazing. I it's one of the best experiences I've ever had in my life as far as um, sports goes. You know, winning the grand final in ninety one was the best, but going away on that kangaroo tour with such an illustrious touring group. You know, another 27 blunts who you're going away with, who you kind of haven't had much to do with before. It's um, biting. It's, it's something that, you know, I, I loved. From there. I, had my, I think I had my 22nd birthday in France, um, which was, you know, my birthday was on December 7th. We didn't, we didn't get back to like December 13 or something. So it's a good three months to go away for. Uh, obviously, in today's format, you wouldn't get the time to do that. But, gee, I wish... A lot more players experienced what we did. It was it was fantastic. Um, and you're right, the the, the, the caliber of player on that tour. Um, first of all, to, to win the, the the game in Old Trafford the way we did, um, on the back of you know Stewart and Meninga and Eddinghausen and Lyons, um, 
yeah, them their four players. Every, every player you had life was was a superstar. So it was just a yeah, it was great to be part of it. Mate, you said that uh, Brad Fittler enjoyed himself while he was over there. For you, who was the uh, man of the match off the field for the tour? Absolutely, Crosby. By, by far, because what happens, what happens on tour with his team, which is the test team usually playing on a Sunday, you know, the, the main team is the Wiggins, the St. Helens, the Leeds, and the midweek boys, which are called the Emus, which I was part of, played against Cumbria and Hull, uh, Warrington, um, so we'd play Wednesday night, every Wednesday night. We'd go out and drink Wednesday night. We'd uh, go on Thursdays, go on a drink Thursday, do the same Friday, Sunday. Sunday we'd get on, we'd do a morning session um, with fitness and then go and be the ball boys and the, the, the lackeys for the first team. You know, if they want water, if they want anything, do a bit of co-commentating for maybe some radio stations that are over there or, or TV networks. Then Sunday night go out with the the big boys go out and have a drink with them and that's what basically out of a whole week Monday and Tuesday they actually you know, you stand out with drink so yeah it was. it was it was pretty easy to get caught up in it if you were someone like Freddie or you know, in the end it was me and Cement God, I started rooming with Johnny Cartwright him and uh, him and Ciro both made it uh, they were the second I was in the test team um, for the law I think Cardi might have come off the bench so me and Cement started rooming for the first the last two months of the tour, both in England um, and then over in France. So, yeah, he, he's uh, he's one of the characters of the game that um, I fell in love with before I met him. And after meeting meeting him, I, I felt more, more in love with him because he's such a fantastic bloke. Um, yeah, so I think he was definitely man match off the field by far. Mate, you return from that 1990 Kangaroo Tour and the Panthers start their rebuild after their uh, grand final loss the year before. And I think this is, you know, the peaking moment in Phil Gould's illustrious coaching career and probably the peak moment in Penrith history. Uh, run me through that grand final. Well, yeah, it's, um, uh, it's similar to the first game. We, we, uh, it, was, well, it was a bit different because uh, we didn't do we, – we hadn't had the build-up that we had. We played North Sydney to get to the grand final. So we, I think we played like a game in a month. We had two weeks off before the first game against North, and then we were a bit rusty against them. So we had another two weeks off to, uh, against the Raiders in the grand final. So we we changed it up a bit. We went, went and trained at the rough base out here at, um, at Penrith and flogged every day, just just done fitness and fitness and fitness and fitness and fitness. And then we went down and stayed at the uh, at Greyhound uh, Motel at Bondi the night, the night before, which was kind of customary. Uh, no names for a uh, feed with a bit of pasta and some schnitzel. And then we all met at Gus's room and his, his pre-game speech was, you know, most of the most of the boys are in tears and it's the game and it was a warm day, more, more you know, warmer than normal in a, in a September game. It was probably up around 33, 34 degrees as we arrived at the uh, grand final and the game before us went into extra time so uh, that kind of puts the the ants in, back into the pants and you start walking around a bit more and flicking the hand and getting nervous. And then we kind of started on fire. We, well, I think we started too well because we didn't realise that, you know, we really scored after about three or four minutes and we, we, we were bashing them in defence and quick, they clicked in their overdrive of skill that they had. Ricky Stewart, long ball out the break quiet, you know, puts Matt Wood over in the corner and that's where they're, they're up 12-6 after we were the better team in the first half and in the dressing room at half time, um, just kind of just he was 
he was pretty quiet for for his you know uh, his normal rants that he'd, he'd give us when we because he, he knew we were playing well. He said he said they're just they've had a couple of um, highlights in the first half, which is good from. So they just keep keep you know keep on keeping on and around the second half and about 15 minutes into the second half, they had their back line in their quarter line and the Paul Clark went for tackle and dislodged the ball. Paul Smith picked it up and scored and we thought we'd level equalised and then the touch judge came on Martin Weeks. I, I called him a cheat. I said, come on man, you're cheating. He said, bullshit. He, look at the replay. He did. He, he hit the ball and he went over and told Billy Harrigan that and Billy Harrigan goes, you're off mate. You're off. I went, what? Ten minutes in the bin. So I thought I thought I was sent off to the final. So I'm walking back to the sheds and Custer sent a message to get me head up. And um, the boys who were in the four pack while I was off, I think you know Royce and the two front rowers, Nobby Clark and Paul Dunn and rowers of uh, you know Barry Walker and Jimmy Carwright and, and Colby in the board. They actually tackled themselves to a standstill and. I ran back on the field with about 20 to go, and they kind of went, ah, okay, we're back to the full complement. Now we can try and win this game. And we did. We just, we, special things got to happen when you win grand finals, and they and on this day they did. But I was supposed to be like a dummy runner in this move that we, I got the, instead I got the ball. Next thing I found, Freddie, well, I threw a miracle ball. I've never, never thrown one like it in my life. Absolute miracle Freddie ball. On the chest. Yep. <laughs> And then Pretty his was even better. Step. Incredible Deep try. Of Brady's eye was fantastic as well. Yeah. So, under the post he goes, and that was basically, I once, deep down, I think once we scored that try, we'd, we'd broken him. And then Brandy kicked a great field goal, which wobbled over. Then, five, for about 10 minutes, we tapped their line, and now they were just there, and they kept, they kept repelling us and repelling us. And then, Ricky Shul got replaced by Scotty Gale, who came on, and away, he went for the short dropout because we were up. Thirteen six, um, and I'm, I'm not sure what it was. Was it score? 13-12? 13-12. Yeah, about thirteen twelve. Yeah, and I knew it. I saw it coming to me. I'm like, my goodness, here we go. So let's go running towards the ball, and I said, if I go to the cricket here, it's going to bounce right into my chest, and it did. And then I thought, okay, now it's time for a try. And looked up, and there's Mal standing there. I go, Jesus Christ, brother, is, is there five of you out here? Um, he tucked me around the legs and Royce came through calling out to me and passed it to him and I, I screamed once he put that body on the corner I screamed that loud and I broke a vocal I couldn't like for days after the grand final I couldn't speak because I broke it my voice box just exploded so I yelled that hard that we won and it was just a surreal experience and Brandy kicked the ball from the sideline just uh, seven points up and that was it we, we couldn't we couldn't lose and that was just a Outside of having um, every one of my child's births five with them, I think that's been the moment in my life that um, I've I would love to play over and over again if I had the chance. Penrith's first ever premiership. What was the emotions like uh, when you got back to the change rooms? I imagine it must have been an absolute zoo. Well, um, Bob was in the Bob Hawk was in there. I remember that he had him and Royce had a beer together. Um, looking around, your family members come in and. Yeah, we're in the we're in the dressing room about two hours after the game, and then we started heading like, heading back to Penrith Police Club. And we we heard that um, there was there were cars all the way to Westmead. That's about you know thirty k's. People were on the side of the roads cheering, and, and and what it done for the the town of Penrith was uh, profound. Everyone just everybody was part of it. We got back to the Leeds Club, and 
we couldn't go on the front gate. Cars everywhere, so we had to go through the back, and then people got the gist that we were back, and uh, they all come to the, back, the bus. <laughs> it's the first time I, I would have imagined what the Beatles felt like, I reckon. It's uh, rocking the bus, and we all got out and we got carried towards, we got carried on people's shoulders to the auditorium. When we just went from one room to another, just to see, say hello to the fans, it was just rapturous. It was just, it was just everyone was in raptures. Everyone just was, you know. I think everyone had a week off in Penrith. Productivity wasn't wasn't real good for that week after the grand final. And but yeah, it was. And again, that's something that um, I'll always be part of, even what, long after I'm gone. Um, to be part of that very first final that Penrith won um, was something that is very, very, very special to me. Mate, they've uh, they've won grand finals since, and they'll win more in the future. But you know, they're never going to win the first one again, are they? The local hero whose death brought a community to a standstill. Alexander. Ben Alexander, the little brother of league legend Greg Alexander, was on the way home from a team function. He'd been drinking when he crashed into a power pole and died. He was just twenty. Ben Alexander's white Honda hit another. You go from the highs in 1991 for the Panthers to probably the all-time low in 92. Run me through that sad season. Oh, well, you can't really describe tragedy because it's um, something you're not prepared for. And, you know, when we we, we, we when tragedy hit, um, everyone coped differently. Everyone had different coping mechanisms. And uh, one thing was, especially it was never going to be the same again with uh, Ben gone. And, you know, it was just a, it's a blur, to be honest. It's, it's, um, I remember from, you know, going from 92, mid, mid 92 when the accident happened to next minute I'm playing at Balmain, then I'm playing at Umina, then I'm playing for Perth. It's just, I, I, yeah, I, I don't know, I was supposed to be a, um, a Penrith man for life, but that wasn't the case. I um, had to get away from the place for a while and play Brandy and, he went over to the Warriors and Perth, and we uh, we we met back at, in 1999 when, or 1998 when I came back. So, you know, and then a couple of years that I had the 98, 99, 60 hours when I came back to Penrith was just another, you know, metamorphosis in in my life that I come back as a 30 year old and from now I was supposed to be a, a leader, which I, I, I yeah, Royce is my coach. There's, there's some irony. Um, yeah, I, I just relish the role of, of, of training young blokes with, with the young blokes, the, the Tony Pultuas, the Frank Pultuas, Ned Caddick, um, Andrew Hinson, uh, Lee Hopkins, all these young blokes who I was now um, looking at me for a leadership role. And I really enjoyed my time back in Penrith for the last three seasons. It, it gave me a chance to rebuild a lot of bridges I'd burned in 92. And, and I love the Perth. Adventure. That was something I had, you know, two kids while I was over in Perth. So it was a great place to live. Uh, very far from, from family, but, but again, nothing no one can ever take away from me is the fact that I was in the first team that ran out at the Wacker in 1995 against the Dragons, against um, one of the competitions of the heavyweights, and we, and we beat them in 40 degree heat in Perth. So that was another, that's a special moment that I remember. And I've got friends from that period of my life that I've got, we'll have forever. and um, yeah, the rugby league is a funny game. It, um, it takes you places that you'd never expect it to. And in 1992, started in 1992, there's no way I, if you said to me that year that what was going to happen would happen, I would have would never have blown you in many years. But it did happen, and we we got on with it. And 
um, but we never forget it. It's, you know, it's with us forever. Speaking of your time in Perth, tell me about the experience of um, having your younger brother Matt playing alongside you. I went with the Perth. He um, he kind of got, he, he was disillusioned with what was happening at Penrith. He couldn't get a run with any of the rep sides. Um, and asked, could he, you know, could he come over and stay with us, me and my wife, and uh, try out for the Junior Reds, which he did and made. And within two years, he was playing first grade. And uh, I think we played 1996 at Club World Club Challenge against the Englishman. And uh, we played Castleford at, at the Wacker, and that was the first game that me and Maddie played together. I remember um, him putting a bomb up for me to score. So um, the first time I touched the ball when I came on, I left the bench. Unfortunately, our last five or ten minutes with MG there, we had some technical difficulties and we're not able to use the uh, sound on it. It's a little bit too quiet. I'm not sure what went wrong there, but uh, you didn't miss out on a heap to finish off there. It was essentially just me saying thank you to MG. Um, As I said at the start of the podcast, he's an absolute champion. He's got all the time in the world for anyone that needs it. Um, You know, I'm a complete stranger to him and he gave me plenty of time and you know, I know that I could have reached back out to him and we could have redone the last five or ten minutes of the interview and, you know, as busy as he is, I know he would have given me that time. I've decided not to. Um, you know, MG knows how much I appreciate it. I flicked him a text after and thanked him for doing the interview and, uh, you know, once again, he offered to do it again. But, um, yeah, look, you, you heard all the quality stuff I wanted to get out of MG and a few other stories I wasn't expecting. So, yeah, if you ever if you ever are in trouble, like MG said reach out to someone, talk, send MG a message, do something, don't uh, don't suffer in silence. Remember to like, subscribe, share this podcast. Thanks for joining in. We'll see you next time. Remember to keep kicking the corners and keep playing smart footy. Listener.